He is a certified athletic trainer and operator of InStreetClothes.com. We welcome Jeff Stotts onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Jeff? I'm doing well. Appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks for coming on the show. And I wanted to talk to you, Jeff, um, specifically about an article that you took part of with The Athletic recently. And I want to get your thoughts on what you said in the article and what I'm hearing from like mainstream journalists. And it seems to be contradictory. It seems from kind of the mainstream, there's a lot of panic. There's a lot of, you know, Kevin Durant, LeBron, Anthony Davis, the sky is falling, all these star players, they're hurt. It's, it's a complete disaster. And yet the NBA came out with their with the um with their study not study but just facts that injuries were actually down um instead of up so can you just explain for people that are panicking they're freaking out they're like hey my star player is hurt like i'm a bulls fan i mean i've, I've seen laurie marketing and zach levine be hurt but I, i'm not claiming the sky is falling i mean this is the most irregular season in, in the history of the nba so can you just explain to a lot of people I guess that are panicking or freaking out why they should just chill and to just take a just relax basically. Well, well, let me start by saying I get this question every single year. I mean, every <laughs> year it seems to be like the sky is falling. Our injuries are up and, it, and it's probably because over the last several seasons, we've had a ton of notable all-star players suffer significant injuries. You know, we, everybody knows the injuries we've had this year. We're, we're missing play. We, we're missing. We just had Jamal Murray go down. Last year, though, you got to remember, we had Jaron Jackson and, and, and Porzingis get injured in the bubble. Uh, we also had another lost season from Clay the year before that. Cousins was out for an extended period of time. Dwight Howard missed most of the season with a back injury. Kevin Love missed time. Porzingis was coming off at ACL. So you, you have all these big-name stars that are missing time. And so everybody kind of always wants to say, hey, is – is this year worse because it's a little bit of recency bias. You know, this year we've had LeBron, we've had AD and the guys that I previously mentioned. I run a a database. I I built a database that collects information all the way from the 2005-2006 season when the the league shifted their way they they recorded games lost so or, or really injuries. Prior to that, if you remember, before the collective bargaining agreement kicked in, when a player was injured, he was out a minimum of five games. He went on that IL, and then he was out at least five games. Well, for research purposes, that's really confusing because if a guy was healthy after two games and he didn't get to come back, it kind of threw the data off. We also found out that, you know, those end-of-the-rotation players, that they had to have two people on the IL. You had rookies and, and end-of-the-rotation players missing 72 games with a sprained ankle or, or 80 games with, with a hamstring strain, when in actuality, they probably weren't hurt. They were just the one that had to go on there for, for roster purposes. So looking at those trends since that 0506 season where it was shifted to a game-to-game inactive list, the injury rates on a game's played right now are not considerably abnormal. And, and that's what, I, what I, we tend to look at for me right now, given that we have so many different variables with this season, given the compressed schedule, the different number of games coming out of the bubble, the, the different timeline than what we're used to. I, I basically will compare how I compare seasons is looking at the total of man games lost. So player games lost to injury or illness in the number of games played. And right now it is up a little bit, but not significantly up. So we are missing games, but it's about the same. Now the caveat there is we're not including those health and safety protocol games. So unless the player has a confirmed case of COVID, we don't, we, they don't, they're not included in those games. But if you factor in those 300 plus games of people missing time and health and safety protocol, the numbers get 
significantly higher. So the other alarming thing, and I mentioned this in that athletic article that you talked about, is the, for the month of April, the numbers are going up. We've had a lot of soft tissue injuries, which are generally the result of fatigue, um, occur in this month. And those numbers are going up. It's, it's trending in a direction that April is going to be the most injury-filled month in terms of numbers and games lost. Um, January was the, the highest, which is not surprising coming out of the preseason at the start of the season. But right now, we're trending in that direction, which is why there is maybe some cause for concern. But overall, still not quite as abnormal as some of the seasons in the past. Hey, Jeff, is that uh, just to follow up on what you just said about the month of April? Is that a typical trend that we see, uh, to your knowledge, like post All Star break and kind of before we get into the time teams might be resting players more in prep- preparation for the playoffs? Is that a typical trend that we see? Is that, um, gosh, I guess that would be maybe typically more like early May time range. Would that be um, a, a standard trend? We definitely see injuries kind of pick up towards the end. I think once the standings start to flush out, you're seeing guys more willing to sit or teams more willing to sit. I don't want to necessarily attribute that to tanking, but I do think that comes into play a little bit as well. It's it's interesting because the rest games are up this year, those injury management games. So, so rest is – I actually separate those as well because – for me, rest games and injury management are decisions by the team, but they're opting to hold that guy out rather than an injury is forcing them out. So even if it's attributed to an injury like Kimball Walker sitting out um, the second night of a back-to-back due to his, his lingering knee issue, I don't attribute that to an injury because that is a decision made by the team. But, but we are seeing an increase in rest. And this year what's interesting is we have over 60 players that have rested, which seems to be pretty high because you're getting guys like Wayne Ellington getting arrested, you know, these, these guys that are not necessarily ones we would think about in terms of top tier talent, more role players are missing games. And again, I think that's probably some positioning in the standings <laughs> a little bit there, but, but again, they're still opting to rest those guys and take it maybe a conservative approach with their, with their uh, health. Jeff, I want to move to the NBA bubble specifically. And just, I guess, when the pandemic first started, what kind of ran through your mind when that game between the Utah Jazz and Dallas Mavericks ended abruptly? And then there was that long span where there was no basketball. And then the NBA planned on having the the NBA bubble. What crossed your mind from an injury standpoint? Were you really concerned? Like, hey, these guys, you know, they have varying circumstances in terms of workouts um, and just facilities in terms of keeping their bodies healthy. Were you really concerned about the the injuries heading into the NBA bubble? And then once the bubble happened, did it play out to your predictions or no? I was pleasantly surprised with how the bubble played out, considering that guys, like you said, we all shut down. We did not have access to our facilities. You heard about players struggling to find a gym to shoot out because not – Every NBA player has a court in their house. And, and so the thing you're concerned about is these guys ramping their activity up very, very quickly after doing nothing. But it sounds to me like a lot of these guys were able to do that. I think a lot of the innovative teams figured out ways to do different things online, do things virtually, screen their guys virtually. And I think that was helpful. You know, the big thing with the bubble was once you were there, we saw there were no COVID cases. They were able to control a lot of the variables. And really when it comes to health and safety, the more variables you can control, the less likely a, or the less likely an injury is to occur. So when things were very controlled and concentrated, it seemed to be a little bit better. Now, do we see some injuries in the bubble? Absolutely. But it wasn't this significant where 
we had a whole ton of injuries, like soft tissue, hamstring strains. We had a couple for sure, but, but not a lot of, of those soft tissue injuries that I was essentially expecting. Ultimately from a, um, just one more follow-up, just, I guess looking in hindsight now, the season's not over yet, but to best to best to your opinion, do you think it was the wisest move to begin a, a regular season right after the bubble? Such an intense, um, I guess, compaction of games and then getting into a regular season format, and which is highly unusual, not to, lip, not to mention it is an Olympic year. So I guess in hindsight, was that the smartest decision from a injury standpoint from the league? Or do you think, you know, the NBA just did what it had to do considering the circumstances is unlike anything that's been ever encountered? You know, I think they did the best with what they had. Uh, I think they looked at everything and, and, and weighed it all and did the best they could do. We, we knew no matter what, this was going to be a unique timeline. The big thing for me that I found a little bit interesting was the fact that we, you know, released the first half of the schedule and then we knew the second half was going to be, we didn't release it in, in, in preparation and maybe some games lost. But we didn't space that out. We didn't we didn't extend that extra time. We just simply said, okay, we missed like the Memphis Grizzlies missed a bunch of games to those health and safety protocols, and then now they're having to compress those games into their already truncated uh, schedule as well. So that that for me was kind of maybe where I would have reevaluated things a little bit and said, hey, the second half we're going to give ourselves a bigger window. But again, like you said, trending on to the Olympics there, uh, and it, it's for me that's really the next big story is. How are we going to get our timelines back? Are we going to have a shorter offseason in anticipation of another 82-game season? Or are we going to reevaluate and say, hey, let's push things back again for one more season that's going to be a little bit different, and then we'll go back onto our normal 82 games? Or are we going to use this as an opportunity to say, hey, let's start shifting to a more consistent 72-game or 66-game schedule, spread things out a little bit, and go from there. And that, that for me is really what, what's, what's going to be the next interesting thing to watch as this season ends, the postseason starts to wrap up, the Olympics, the decision is made there, and then we start into that, that, that following that 2021-2022 season because that is a whole nother scenario that, that is right around the corner and we've got to start figuring. And, and if we're, we do attribute some of this injury um, problem to the compressed schedule, are we going to uh, find some ways to make up for it in an upcoming season as well? Jeff, I'm curious, kind of more just a theoretical question with your background as as an athletic trainer, um, based on and, and based on the data that you mentioned earlier that that you've been, um, you know, viewing over over the past over a decade. Um, is there an ideal rate of games played that that you would advise? Like, say you were brought on a on a board to advise how seasons should be scheduled just in general. Uh, I mean, would you say things like no back-to-backs? What would you say would be like a good maybe frequency of games per week, if that's the best way to put it? Um, what would your thoughts be on an optimal, just in terms of injury prevention, a perfect world, let's say? <laughs> I would say probably three games a week, right? And, and you, can, you can finagle that in different ways where you have back-to-back make some accommodations for travel based on what's coming up. So if, if you know you're going to have maybe a long plane ride, then you have a back-to-back, you know, do a, do a home-and-home. Home. So you fly to L.A., play the Clippers, and then the Lakers back-to-back, something like that. Or, you know, you do some of these other issues. But, but three games a week, I think, would allow for you to minimize the back-to-back games, the compressed schedule. Because, you know, sometimes we're having five games in a week and four games in a week, and sometimes just two. And so 
somewhere around three. I think we're at like three and a half per ga- games per week right now anyway. Yep, but it's if like you could 3.6. Maybe, maybe, yep. Yeah, just, just scale that back just a little bit, just that extra half game. And I think you're going to see it fit a narrative that is that it works a little bit better for managing the schedule and, and potentially managing some of these injuries. Do you think that, you know, maybe, um, of course, there's so many confounding variables, you know, it's, it's tough to pinpoint and injuries can be kind of randomized as well, depending on uh, the situation, you know, like, like you said, it's, it can be hard to control. Do you think that having kind of the, the like baseball series that they've had earlier in the season has helped with that? Like having guys stay and you play in Miami two nights in a row, or maybe, you know, two out of the three nights, has that helped maybe give some consistency and, and, possibly prevent some injuries is that something the nba should continue with oh absolutely i think the feedback from the players after the bubble when they didn't have to travel was we felt better you know we 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 didn't have to finish a game then go get on a plane check in at three o'clock in the morning you know check in five o'clock in the morning whatever it is go take our you know shoot around rest whatever the case may be so so yes i do think that's one of the ways the, the nba listened to their players and said hey okay let's minimize travel let's do what we can to allow you to stay in one location to get adequate rest uh to do the things that we can do to help with the recovery not just injury prevention but recovery for recovering from these games played recovering for it from an injury if it does occur and doing everything they can to again minimize variables and that's really the big thing it's Injury data is tough because there are so many variables. And when you, like I said earlier, if you can control one or minimize the number of variables, you're going to give your player the best chance of mitigating their risk and lowering those risk factors. And would you say, sorry, one more follow-up and then I'll let you get in here, Justin. Uh, but with, you know, mention of the soft tissue injuries and, and kind of the nature of those injuries, is that something that's uniquely the the higher frequency of games puts us at more risk for these soft tissue injuries? You know, given that like general training guidelines, you know, you, you don't want to, like in a weight training routine, you don't want to train the same muscle groups typically like back-to-back days. You have a lot of explosive movements in basketball where we're hearing a lot of hamstring injuries like the recent James Harden injury and, and others. Um, is, is that something that might be unique, uh, uniquely more risky to the back-to-backs? Yes. And, and it's, a, it's a short answer because we, we use a different bunch of different ways to measure fatigue and, and load. You hear load management, but load management really came from the term like how much load is a player putting on his body? And, and a lot of staffs around the league will use their own in-house way to get to measure that you know you're you're monitoring a player everything he's doing in the weight room everything he's doing you know pre-game post-game during the game they're tracking all this information and so you can use a couple different models uh the the acute to chronic workload is one where you're looking at how much has the player done within the last four to five days versus the last week two weeks five weeks depending on how big you want your parameters to go so you're looking at with short-term versus long-term load basically is what it comes down to. And so if you can minimize those things and find that healthy balance, you're going to mitigate that risk, like I said. So uh, it, it's an interesting concept. It, it's it's an imperfect concept. Everything we're, we're doing is kind of an imperfect science in, in a way that, again, if I could prevent injuries from occurring, I would be a millionaire and everybody would be playing because I would give a pill to everybody. You know what I mean? So, because <laughs> I'm a basketball fan first, I want to see everybody out on the court. I don't like it when KD or James Harden misses. You know, I, I want to see everybody sure. out there. 
so you, you're, you're, it's, it's risk management. And so the more you can buy your guys recovery and reduce their risk and, and take them out of those red zones back into the yellow, maybe even the green area, the, the, more, the more likely they're going to be able to get on the court, stay on the court, and be productive on the court. Awesome. Jeff, um, since you've been tracking this data for a while, I wanted to ask, what trends have you seen from when you first started tracking this data to now in terms of how athletes take care of their bodies? Um, I saw a podcast of some I Am An Athlete, had Brandon Marshall and um, Chad Ochocinco. Um, they were like, it's a ridiculous debate of how Ochocinco was talking about, hey, I, eat, I ate McDonald's all the time. I never got injured. And then why you, he was kind of clowning um, Brandon Marshall, like, eating clean. Like, why are you eating clean? I ate McDonald's all the time. So I guess to that point, I just wanted to ask, like, there's this narrative that for Matt and I that were fans – that we see every athlete, you know, they eat right meticulously. They, you know, they take care of their bodies. Is that overall true in terms of each athlete within the NBA? Are, are you seeing more, just more common than not, athletes really just focusing on their nutrition and taking care of themselves? Or is that kind of just not really true, except, like, except for the elite athletes that are carrying the league? Sure. It's definitely case to case. Uh, I think there are some some cases where a guy like LeBron James knows his body better than anybody probably on the planet. He he is very smart about what he puts into his body and, and his output as well. But then you have the stories about other guys, you know, Dwight Howard famously eating tons of candy bars and sugar and things like that. So, you know, I think it's a lot of these guys have bad habits coming in and then they fix those habits over time. Uh, and I think what we're seeing and, and the trends that I'm seeing in terms of like player health is medical staffs of NBA teams becoming very large. When I first got into this, I, I you know kicked around the idea of actually going to the NBA myself. And back then there was the athletic trainer, maybe an assistant athletic trainer, the strength and conditioning coach. And that was basically it. But now you have massage therapists, um, full-time PT, physical therapists that work with these groups, dietitians, nutritionists. Um, a lot of the teams hire chefs to to provide that food so their guys don't have to then on their way home swing by McDonald's and grab something. You know, it's a we're gonna control what you eat and provide you healthy food to, to help maybe build some of those those good habits so that it's that we take those variables out of out of play, like I said. So that that for me has been the big thing and like one of the big noticeable trends in player health is the improvement of the number of people on on medical staffs across the league. So you you see them get bigger. And and it's not just the athletic trainers too because now we have assistant athletic trainers or two assistant athletic trainers, and you have all this other applied sciences that go into it that are they're helping with um, player health and player player performance. So, our players when they enter the league as a rookie, are they I guess aware of how to take care of their bodies, or is this a thing where maybe in college they already have that knowledge in place compared to I guess years ago maybe that wasn't um, really given to them you know usually we hear of rookies and know how to take care of like money and, and other aspects of their life and becoming a professional but with health I, I don't know do they start that kind of training I guess from high school um, college and pro do they already have some of that in steel training you know playing AEU or other um, I guess high-level basketball that's not professionally, or do they pretty much have to learn that uh, right from, like you said, the expanded kind of medical staff in the pros? I think it depends on their background and where they're coming from. If they're coming yeah. from a, you know, a North Carolina, a Kansas, a Duke that is as close to professional program as you can come, you know, they're already going to have those habits starting to be ingrained in them there. You know, um, some of the other smaller schools, they may not have the budgets to do those kinds of things. They might still feed the team fast food, you know, and whatever they can, whatever they can provide, 
it, it, one of the big problems I think with with AAU, and I'm not trying to rail against AAU, but you know, the money isn't always there, and so these guys do. They go play a tournament, and they they are given fast food, and they play a lot of games, and it's it's a lot of stress on the body. I, I think AAU has a really good purpose, but I think sometimes it depends on the program, and it depends on what what system, what team you're put through, and you're seeing that improve across the board in a lot of cases where players are getting more involved. Um, spending, you know, investing money in in these situations, but it, it's just not the case for everybody. So, you know, I, I think it really is dependent on where you're coming from in high school and where you're coming from in college, and just it kind of layers up as you go. And it's easier for the guys that have always been near the top and had the best access to everything. Jeff, I've got, I've got a more kind of training related question and and kind of like youth sports related question. Um, so I, I was having a discussion with a friend recently. I'll try to make this brief. And he was saying that he coaches youth soccer. And he said, oh, man, we lost one of our good kids because his baseball coach is, is demanding that he does baseball year round. And I said, oh, wow. So he must be like getting ready for college. He said, I, I coach a nine-year-old team, like a team of nine-year-olds. Uh, and <laughs> maybe maybe I'm old school here and you can tell my bias. But uh, it, I, I just laughed at the notion that this nine-year-old child had to specify with baseball. There have also been some reports of perhaps overtraining or overload with too many basketball games, uh, as especially as kids get into middle school, college years, or, or I'm sorry, middle school, high school, and club sports. Um, what would your advice be for, let's say, like like a 10-year-old kid who loves not just basketball, but any given sport? Where where do you kind of fall on the debate between like specificity versus like building an overall athletic base? Have fun and play as many sports as you can. I, I'm, specialization at a young age is is just not the best approach. Uh, I, I think you can start developing developing a love for a sport, but it's back to what we talked about with those load patterns. If we're just constantly wearing down the tray, I mean, we go, we get our tires rotated on our cars, right? Because we know the same load pattern on those tires is going to wear those tires down. So if you're an athlete that plays, plays baseball, you're loading your shoulder, you're loading your elbow, you're doing these things, right? And then you go play basketball, your shoulder gets a break. You move more side to side, more straight line running up and down. You're loading your body in different patterns. So, even though you're being active, you are giving some of your other areas a chance to recover. I think that's still the case for a lot of, uh, especially young developing bodies. It's extremely important that they're allowed to grow in various different patterns. That is one of the big problems we have. Studies have shown that the collegiate athletes that are successful tend to play multiple sports. You know, they learn different hand-eye coordination techniques. They learn how to see things visually from different games. Uh, process of thinking, you know, uh, problem solving. You you are forced to think outside of just one narrow scope. You you broaden your horizons. You look at it through a bunch of different patterns, and the body generally tends to do better that when you've loaded it in multiple ways. So I would say, especially young young kids, go play everything. Go go do what you can. Find what you like. Have fun with it. Because again, we're we're seeing a lot of these guys also get burned out. They've been playing nothing but that sport since 10, they're 10 years old. By the time they get to college, they don't even know if they want to play it anymore, but they've got to play for their, their, their scholarship. And then, then they get drafted. They even, they even want to play basketball. So it, it, it's, it's frustrating. And my, again, my answer is play as much as possible for as long as possible. Enjoy everything you can. Amen to that. I wanted to also get your thoughts on uh, 
your your opinion from the athletic training side you know we saw justin and i talked about this on on an episode of our show last week the spurs are common culprits of getting fined by the league for resting players and i know that there is certainly a business incentive a business component to this for the nba they want to um protect their interests with regards to tv contracts things like that but in your opinion as an athletic trainer should a team be fined for resting a player? I mean, regardless of the reason? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I don't think that, that should be the case. I, I think you have to trust the team that they're around those guys 24-7. And if that's what's going to – that, that's what's in the best interest of the player, you should be able to do it. Uh, you know, you're right. The Spurs have been – they were basically the founders of this rest This rest. Uh, situation they they were doing it long i remember tim duncan getting the did not play old age right like the, the yep. dmp so <laughs> it but pops always had the luxury of being able to do that because his team has always been successful and they felt confident in their system you know it's harder for a, a sacramento who's been struggling for the last decade to say hey you know what we're gonna do tonight even though we're five games back we're gonna we're gonna rest our star, our star players you know you, you can't do that uh, but i will say this do you know who has the top ranked medical staff since 2005 2006 the San Antonio Spurs, they've lost the fewest games out of anybody. So, you know, I think it's a smart approach. I mean, you've heard guys like Duncan, Parker, Ginobili, in the years that they went into the playoffs, they said they went into those postseasons fresh, ready to go, and, and a lot less fatigued than they, they would if they had played every single game. They understand what the approach is. So I think I get the league's frustration with it, especially when it's a marquee game and you're missing four or five of the, of the top guys. but the, the league could potentially schedule those games in a way that doesn't have to be a back to back to back. Okay. We know you're going to be on a marquee game or we're not going to have you playing the night before. So that way you, 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 you minimize the chances of the need for rest so that you basically say, Hey, play your guys. Cause we're going to make sure that you can. Jeff, I wanted to ask you in terms of this current season, what consequences or concerns do you foresee in future seasons that might come up due to, I guess, the season that we're currently in from the pandemic in regards to, you know, guys continuing to just, you know, pop up COVID positive and not to mention it's the long-term consequences of getting COVID to just how the season specifically played out to veteran players. Do you see any long foreseen consequences of what is happening now, or do you think this is an anomaly and, and eventually things will work its way back to normal? It's like I mentioned earlier, I think the big question is what is next next season going to look like? Because I think these guys, it's very clear, physically they need a rest, uh, and I think mentally they need a break. Uh, going through this season with all the COVID protocols in place, for me as an athlete trainer, was exhausting. And I wasn't testing my athletes multiple times a day. You know, I had to do certain things that I'd never done before, cleaning equipment, sterilizing everything, making sure we were compressing uh Pre, pre-game and, and with social distancing and things like that, it, it's, it's been a frustrating year for me. Now imagine that on the NBA scale where they're having to get tested multiple times. Uh, you're hearing a lot of these players start to talk about that it's just been a grind. So my concern is, are we going to allot enough recovery time for these guys both physically and mentally? Or are we just going to try to get back to normal as quickly as possible? And I think you have to weigh that and figure out what is the best way to, yes, make the money and meet the, meet the markers you need to, to, satisfy all your contracts and TV time and things like that, but also ensure that the best product is out there. You're doing what's best for the players. And, and overall, 
that is what the league has always tried to do. It's been successful in, in more situations than not. And they're always open to listening to their players. They're always open to listening and, and to, to the teams. It's just, you know, remember, we, we're, we're dealing with, I hate to say the kind of cliche, unprecedented times here. But, you know, for me and the data collection, I'm throwing out last year because I don't have anything to compare it to. And I don't know how long I'm going to be feeling those effects in terms of comparing this, this upcoming data to the years past. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for coming on the show. Um, please let our listeners and viewers know where they can find you on social media. Um, let them know what you're up to on um, industryclose.com and anything else you're working on to share. Well, so I'm always on Industry Clothes. That's my website, industryclose.com. Uh, I'll always try to put something out for, for a lot of these unique injuries when they occur, uh, giving a breakdown of what to expect when the player's coming back, what, what history tells us, how long they might miss. Social media, I'm on Twitter at, at InStreetClothes. And so InStreetClothes is like when a player is injured in InStreetClothes. That's the easiest way to kind of find me. And then I do, do uh, as well do some work for rotowire.com. I'm the fantasy sports analyst for their th- the three major sports, baseball, football, and basketball. So kind of taking my data and, and throwing the fantasy slant and fantasy angle on it and, and helping you out with your teams on a week-to-week basis. Um, real quickly, since you brought up the fantasy standpoint, how has it been for you in terms of fantasy basketball uh this season <laughs> well well i'm in one league i'm in the playoffs right now and i'm getting killed by games lost i mean it's <laughs> i've got zach levine i've got robert williams oh man and so I've, I've got some of these these key guys that are missing games uh right when i need them most so it's i, I missed i missed a buy by like half a game which would have given me this week off to, re- to recover a little bit but uh looks like i'm gonna get upset luckily the guy that's upsetting me is my best friend so I can't be too angry, uh, but as long as he doesn't rub it in too much. I was going to say that could be unluckily too. <laughs> Sounds like you got a good friend though. <laughs> well, Jeff, uh, thank you very much for joining the show. We really enjoyed the chat. Thank you very much. Appreciate you guys for having me on.